You're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today my guest is designer Rod Whitman. Rod Whitman is kind of like the silent assassin of golf course design. For almost 40 years, he's quietly been a behind-the-scenes force, constructing courses alongside architects like Pete Dye, Bill Coor, Gil Hans, and others. His creative and interpretive shaping work has helped bring to life some of America's greatest courses, including Austin Country Club, Oak Tree, Crooked Stick, Friar's Head, and Old Sandwich. For most of his career, he's been the ultimate hired gun, a maestro on the bulldozer who is as respected as anyone in the design business for his artistry and innovation. Yet up until very recently, few people outside a small group of golf course architecture fanatics even knew who he was. Even though he'd built and designed courses on his own, he remained in the shadows. His talents and accomplishments were great, but his fame was somewhat dim. That began to change in 2009 with the opening of one of Whitman's solo designs called Sagebrush, a gorgeous, rambling, naturalistic course that tumbled down a rugged lakeside slope in British Columbia. Shortly thereafter, developers Ben Cohen Dewar and Mike Kaiser, founder of Bandon Dunes, selected him to design the first course at Cabot Links, their new destination resort in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, on the dramatic banks of the St. Lawrence River. Playing and looking like a Scottish Lynx course with rumpled fairways and windswept seaside holes, Cabot Lynx opened in 2012 to enormous critical acclaim and now resides on nearly every list of the world's top 100 courses. With Cabot Lynx, Whitman got his opportunity and now his due, but it's clear that he still possesses a passion to work on more projects of similar esteem, this time as a headliner rather than a hitman. He was in Mexico when I spoke with him, taking a short hiatus from the Canadian winter. Our Skype connection broke several times, perhaps because of the location, but I hope it doesn't detract from the content of our conversation. And here it is, my conversation with Rod Whitman. Where in Mexico are you? Uh, Manzanillo uh, is down on the west coast of uh, Mexico. And uh, yeah, we're here for a couple of months. Are you on like a sabbatical taking some time away or are you on a job? Oh, I'm just on a bit of a holiday. Yeah, most I've been coming down to Mexico in the winter for several years now. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a break. So it's getting, getting out of those... Uh, Canadian winters is probably, Mexico's probably seems like a pretty good place. Exactly right. And uh, yeah, normally, you know, I've been pretty busy in the summer and, you know, spring and fall, obviously. But uh, in the winter, if I get a chance, I, I like to take some time off. Yeah, recharge. Are there are there golf courses where you are right now? There are some. Uh, I can't say they're really good, but uh, I, I, sometimes I'll go up and play uh, Isla Navidad a little bit north of here and there's a couple of courses there that uh yeah are like real golf courses so i'll i'll go up there and play there a little bit uh-huh. how is your golf game these days well i can't say that it's that good but i enjoy i still enjoy uh hitting balls and playing you played collegiate golf at sam houston state uh so you're at one point you must have been a pretty good stick well i i can't say i was you know it depends on who you're measuring yourself against. <laughs> I uh, I did uh, qualify for the Texas State Open one year, and uh, I think the year before Ben Crenshaw might have won it, and he was so many under you can't count it. And uh, yes, 
my scores of 76 or 78 don't compare to 64s and 63s, well, they're, they're, which was what he was shooting in those you, days. So you got uh, to take Ben Crenshaw out of that equation. <laughs> exactly right. So, so that told me something that you know you're never going to be a a golf player, so to speak, but. Uh, you know, certainly enjoy the game. Yeah. Well, when I heard or read that you, uh, that's where you went to college and he, at Sam Houston State, I, I wondered, well, you know, how did a guy from Texas get up to Canada? But it's actually the other way around. You grew up in Canada, right? So how did, how did you get from Canada all the way down to Texas? Well, a friend of mine, uh, Ryan Vold, uh, uh, back there in Pinocchio, Alberta, he, he had actually gone down there to, to school and, uh, and was playing golf and uh you know i had started college in canada and quit and went to work and you know i just wasn't making that much progress in my life so i decided to go back to school and i thought well if i go back to school it would be nice to go someplace warm where i could play golf too and so through ryan i uh i ended up at sam houston state university so at, at, you're down in texas and that's where your path and bill core's paths cross how did you first meet him? What would, where did you meet him, and, and what did you think of him the first time you saw each other? Well, you know, it's a little bit fuzzy now, but, uh, I mean, he was, he, was, uh, he was working out at Waterwood National, which was a, sort of a new golf course, a little bit unfinished. And, uh, you know, that's probably the first time I ever saw him, he was probably working in a bunker or something, doing you know, architectural type things. And uh, me and Ryan would go out there and play golf and uh, it would be cold and rainy and, and, you know, we were just happy to be out there. And I think Bill just looked over and said, uh, who are these guys coming out here? <laughs> I don't think he had a great opinion of of, uh, of what we were actually doing at the time on, on the golf course. It wasn't quite finished. And uh, anyway, we just, we did talk a little bit and then you know, started to play a little bit of golf together, and uh, and that's kind of how it started. So you started off more as friends than in a business relationship. He didn't just hire you right out right out of the gate. No, no, we uh, we were working out there, and uh, actually, uh, being from Canada and as a college student, uh, I'm not even sure that I was allowed to work at that time. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, you'd have a hard time these days, at least. Yeah, yeah, we signed up to. Uh, you know, help out in the pro shop and, and uh, pick range balls and stuff like that so that we could actually, you know, play golf out there. And, uh, you know, just being out there a lot, we I just we just got together with Bill and, and played a little bit of golf on the weekends, and uh, we just became friends. I'm not sure how that happens. It just happened. Who was the better player then? Oh, certainly Bill. Oh, was he? No question was he? About it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no question. So what's, what was he like as a young guy? I've talked to him a few times. I had him on this show um, a couple months ago. Uh, he seems like such a, a polite, generous, nice guy, and, and he, I'm sure he is, but was he different back then? What were your early impressions of Bill Corr? Well, he was all of that. And, I mean, you know, our t- conversations were about golf, and, and, you know, he just was so enthusiastic about, you know, the architectural side of golf, which at that time I'd, probably never even thought of i mean i just wanted to play golf and 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 but certainly uh the way he talked certainly got me interested in in you know the bigger scope of the game and uh and uh 
you know, he was just a great friend. He would take me to the different places and talk to me about these old books that he'd read. And, and at that time, going back to college, uh, you know, you just wanted to learn. You know, you were ready to learn new things. And, and that was a side of golf that I had never studied. And, you know, just Bill, just his passion for the game really uh, was sort of an inspiration. So you said, what, what, what did you get your degree in when you were in college? I took... Uh, <laughs> I majored in psychology and, and minored in philosophy. <laughs> so that was, uh, that's what I got a degree in. Did you have any desire to follow up on, on those uh, pursuits after college? Or did you knew, you know, you, you said you'd like to play golf. Did you think that was an avenue? What, were, what was your thought process in those postgraduate days? You know, I just, I ended up, uh, you know, going to work for Bill on the golf course, and uh, you know he was he was going to become an architect, and, and certainly the way he conducted himself. Uh, I mean, back in those days, it wasn't easy to break into that sort of business. He had done some work for Pete Dye, and and uh, you know we 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 had these little construction projects, and I, I was always helping him. So that's. You know, we just got into that, and I was sort of like getting into the architecture business from a from a ground level, and and uh, you know, I never thought about doing anything else. Did you go with him when he got his first design at Rockport? I didn't. Actually, uh, the way things worked out, I was. I remember we were rebuilding the ninth green, and uh, it was in the winter, I believe, but. Anyway, he got a phone call from Pete Dye, and Pete was looking for a fella to come out and watch dump trucks dump dirt at the Waterwood, or not at Waterwood, but at the Austin Austin Country Club. You know, just a short-term position just to get the place going. I don't think Pete had a, had a fella to, to put there at the time. So, you know, Bill had uh, talked to Pete about me before, and one way or another, Pete just needed a fellow to come out there and watch watch the course for just a, a little bit while he went away. And Bill went and rented me a car, and I drove out there and then started to work. <laughs> and you you worked for I guess for Pete Dye, would you say most through most of the nineteen eighties? Off and on, yes, exactly right. Yeah, and into the a little bit in the nineties too, perhaps, but. Uh, yeah, off and on, I, I did I did a couple of courses for Pete, yeah. Do you still uh, keep in touch with Pete, or have you spoken to him recently? I know he's having some uh, some health issues right now. Yeah, I haven't lately. Uh, I think the last time when I was working up at Cabot, Cabot uh, Links, that, uh, I talked to him on the phone. But it's been a while. Yeah, yet. well, when, in those early days, in the 80s, when you started working with, with Pete, what what was his personality like? Did you find him an easy guy to work with? Was he uh, a funny guy on the job site or was he serious, difficult? What was he like? Uh, certainly not difficult. I mean, very easy going, uh, super loyal to you as a, as a, as a, as his guy on site. And, you know, I think the most difficult part about working for Pete was just trying to, you know, understand him a little bit. I mean, I think, we didn't have plans, none of those sorts of things. He he just left you to your own devices, but he would he would explain to you kind of what he wanted, so you needed to know 
or figure out what what he was getting at and why he was trying to do it. And, and uh, yeah, I think you need to have a good feel for what he was trying to do, and and and, and I did that. How long did it take until you felt comfortable interpreting his direction and giving something that giving him something that pleased him? I, it well, it took a while. It certainly did, but I mean, we were that was a difficult job. We were on the on uh, you know some pretty severe ground, and, and I don't think we ever moved any topsoil for for almost a year before we actually started building. You know, I had some time to, to get a feel for what he was trying to do. And, and you know, I, I ran some equipment. I ran the bulldozer when we need to build grains and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, he uh, he just had a lot of patience with you. He really did. And, and he would take me to Oak Tree, and we would look at the greens that he'd done there. And, you know, we'd go out to Palm Springs, and he'd show me some of the work that he was doing there. So he did spend a lot of time with you and uh, – you know, I just think I had a good feel for it. At that point, uh, especially in the early 80s, those first few projects, where would you say your uh, architectural IQ level was? Obviously, it's become world class now, but at, in those, did you did you have a lot of experience? Did you, had you, um, I know you, you talked to, you said that uh, Bill would show you books and you'd talk about it with, with Bill, but where do you think you were on a, on a relative level at that point? Certainly on a construction level, I'd, I'd done enough construction work in my career. That's probably why I got into golf to get out of it. But in the end, uh, my past experiences in construction certainly helped me. Yeah, that would be hard to say, but it would certainly be below in the low 40s or something like that. You know, I'd, I grew a lot on that job. And, uh, and really, that sort of set the stage for the rest of my career, working at the Austin Country Club. So everybody that I've ever spoken to that has worked uh, under Pete Dye on his cruise, they, they preach the the importance of developing in the field rather than from a set of plans. I know you're that way as, as well. What else did you learn from Pete Dye that's still to this day, other than that, that still to this day influences your decision-making and the way you approach golf course design? Well, I think from an architectural standpoint, Pete was always trying to impressed upon me uh, the you know certainly the short game working around the green i mean it was like we started at the green and we worked backwards towards the tee in some ways uh you know where you know where he wanted people to miss the ball and, and if they did miss it on a certain part of the green what kind of shot would that be so that was very important and then the other thing would be uh, he would want you to be able to miss the ball on uh, you know miss the green on on pros do that on one side of the green or the other to have the easier shot in or, or something like that and you know and also he'd make it difficult around the green if you if if you missed it back over uh, he would put a bunker in behind the green and the ball would roll actually around to, so that you'd end up with a shot have to go over the bunker onto a green <laughs> it was sort of a uh, I wouldn't say tricked up, but I mean, there was a there was a, a strategy there that you know he wanted you to to be able to to chip and putt around the greens, and uh, certainly uh, he was trying to make it difficult for you to, to do that. In some- yeah, uh, when I think of when I think of Pete Dye, I, I'm and the way he would design strategically, and I, I I think of 
his setups were more about shot shapes and, and, you know, there are very few straight lines. It was always kind of a right to left or left to right tee to green approach. And then you get around the green and there's a lot of depth and three dimension in the contours around the green. Uh, some of the, you know, many of the sites that, that you've worked on are, are much more lateral. There's much more width to them, but do you still feel like you incorporate anything like Pete Dye did or have you kind of evolved in subtle ways away from, from that more of a prescriptive approach? No, I, I certainly, his, his thought process of trying to get the players to move the ball from right to left and left to right, you know, uh, that was very important and it still is. And I think, uh, I mean, he had a style that beat you over the head with that sort of look. I mean, he wanted you to be able to hit a draw or hit a fade. And, and uh, to this day, I still think that that's a, that's a very cool thing. He, he had his own style how to make you do that or, or want you to do that. But, uh, you know, I think over the years with technology, we've sort of lost some of that, you know, sort of lost some of that strategy has become more of a power game than, than actually a finesse game of, of moving the ball around and hitting high and low shots and that sort of thing. So uh, in his era, I think it was very important for the players to be able to do that. So, so many of the golf courses that he designed, he knew that professionals were potentially or definitely going to be playing there. So, from what I've uh, spoken to him about and heard other people talk about, you know, he's always approaching design with this idea that the tour with a, with a tour player in mind, which that's got to be a hell of a way to have to think all the time when when you're designing a golf course. Do you think, from what you've saw in his later work, did he ever? Do you think? Did Pete Dye ever get away from that and become more of a natural or intuitive designer free from those constraints, or is that just wired into to how he thinks? Uh, I would say that, that certainly that was a, a major part of his thought process back in those days. But at the same time, when we were at the uh, Austin, you know, I mean, there's just not that many bunkers out there. And, uh, I mean, we tried to make it a a difficult golf course, but he was very cognitive of the, of, you know, there was going to be a lot of players out there that aren't golf pros and, and, and there was always a place to miss the ball. We worked very hard at that. So, uh, I think in some ways that's always been in there. It just different clients d- demand different, demand a different, d- different kind of golf courses. And, and in my mind, I always felt like he always ended up hitting the mark as far as making it playable for, for others too. What were your thoughts over the last few years when you've seen the match play tournament at Austin Country Club? Could you, I mean, you probably in the early 80s couldn't envision um, some of the places the guys are hitting it. What are your thoughts? I mean, does that, do you just roll with that or does it bother you on some level? I I think it does bother me on some level. I mean, uh, you know, some of the par fives are just, they're just not par fives. There's but in some ways they're still, they're, they're difficult force if you want to think of it that way. Uh, you know, given, given the, the power game today, uh, you know, we've just, I think we've just lost a little bit in, in the variety of the game, but uh, yes, yeah, they hit an incredible different uh, distances today. It, you know, the golf is, is certainly about power more than shot shapes and that sort of thing. So they do, hit it incredible distance but i greens out there you know they're difficult around the greens 
I see the players not getting up and down quite as much as, as you would actually imagine. So I was I was proud of the way that golf played around the greens. I think Pete would have been too. Given that, I mean, you know, I thought it was uh, Austin Golf Club is uh, is not that long, of course, and it, it was still pretty exciting golf. So uh, given the distances they hit the ball today, uh, I think the course actually stood up pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it certainly was a venue that was it's highly entertaining. I mean, it provides for great television and great competition. So, I mean, that even if they're hitting driver, you know, wedge into par fives, it's still, you know, it still can be an entertaining if if you don't let it bother you too much. No, no, I mean, you know, it's, golf has just evolved in in that direction, and uh, and certainly. Uh, We'll see what happens over time. I'm not sure where where the game goes from here, but uh, you know, for for most of us, it's still it's still a lot of fun, and uh, it, it plays. It doesn't play. I mean, the pros are a lot better than we are. We 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 can't hit those distances, so we we still play an old fashioned game. In an interview with Golf Club Atlas in 2000, you said, and I'll quote: "From a design standpoint." I don't give equipment or grasses a second thought, unquote. Do you still have that opinion? Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, yeah, I think I've grown a little bit sincere in, in, in those kinds of thoughts. And I mean, you know, at Cabot, uh, we, we put all those fescue grass. You know, it's a, it's a pure fescue golf course, you know, green tees and, 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 and fairways. And so that actually... It certainly plays different than say growing up on a on a bluegrass uh, golf course or something like that. So, so and a little more difficult too. So, yeah, grassing I think is certainly more important in my mind than 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 it used to be. So let's go back to uh, to your career uh, to the point when you begin to work with Bill and Ben. What was the first project where you reunited with him? <clears throat> yeah, in the mid '80s, uh, I did a golf course with Bill in France, and uh, he was not partners with Ben at that time. It was Golf to Me Doc in in the south of France, and uh, you know I went over there and and uh, you know ran the job for him, and and uh, you know built a golf course, and then they also decided to uh, you know build a second 18, and. Uh, I mean, they, at the time, they certainly wanted the same team. I, Bill was, I don't know if he was busy doing something else or he just wanted to give me a chance. But anyway, he talked him into letting me do the second 18 on my own, which I did. And so we ended up with uh, Bill Coor, Rod Whitman, 36-hole uh, complex out, out there. And uh, I'm very happy with that. What was that like working in France? Certainly, it was difficult in some ways. I mean, the language barriers and and whatnot. But uh, you know, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, we had a, an ownership that you know they just they came out there and they just told you you know you do what you want and uh, don't worry too much about what some other people might come out here and tell you. <laughs> and, and so we cert- we certainly had a a good direction from the top, like just. You guys build this thing the way you want to, and and uh, and that was great to have that to have ownership behind you. Even though it was probably one of Bill's first golf courses, I'm not his first, but certainly 
one of his earlier ones and uh I'd only built uh, a couple for Pete. So, I mean, we were a little bit green in a foreign country, but, uh, you know, it was a great experience, a great life experience, you know, trying to trying to work through that. The club in Medoc is proximate to some of the greatest wines in the world. Did you develop a taste for Bordeaux when you were over there? Yeah, uh, certainly a taste for Bordeaux and, and, and cheese. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was, took a little getting used to, but, uh, you know, I've traveled around the world, different places. You know, I did a course in Germany and I, you know, I did some work for Bill and Ben when they were in uh, Indonesia. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it just seemed like wherever you went and dealing with the local people was just great life experiences and I enjoyed all of them. Uh, any recommendations on a, a good chateau from Bordeaux? Did you get into the first growths, or uh, what was what was your preference? Well, I do know that I had an interpreter down there, and uh, we're over there, and and certainly he had a taste for wine. <laughs> he would, since I was making more money than him, he would certainly try to pick out the the best bottles he could find and talk me into buying them. <laughs> There's no, I don't think there's a, a golf architect in the world that could afford a, the current vintages of, of first growth Bordeaux now. I don't know, at least nobody that's readily willing to throw down two, two or three thousand dollars a bottle. No, no, no. If I'd have been smarter, I would have uh, probably got in the wine business, but uh, exactly, yeah. yeah, importing that. Wow, but it was certainly fun, and uh, you know, I've been over there since I've uh, been back to the Medoc uh, even a couple of years ago, and we uh. You know, built a little training center there. Actually, I'd, I'd done a, at one time there was two driving ranges there and, you know, they abandoned the one and then the last time they had me over there, I actually rebuilt it into uh, a training center. So you had also built uh, around that time or a little before your first solo design at uh, Wolf Creek up in Alberta. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, that was a little bit earlier in uh, 1982 or three, something like that, I think. So your early design style at Golf du Medoc and Wolf Creek, how would you de- define that? Was it sort of inter- an interpretation of Pete Dye, or did you, were you coming at it with some of your own ideas as well? Well, certainly, I mean, I was so much younger then. Uh, but at that time, that you know, I'd never been to scotland england ireland or any of those uh, places over there but having worked for pete and for some reason in the early 80s i mean every magazine you picked up usually had some scottish courses on there big spreads on 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 these uh, old courses and and i'd picked up a few of those books and uh, certainly looked at a lot of pictures from from those courses and you know, my idea at the time was try to out Pete die, Pete die, and, and make it as Scottish as as possible. So, so that was my my thought then, and and certainly some of the work there uh, would reflect the, the Pete die influence. And looking back on that, are you are you happy with that? Do you chalk it up as just being a young guy, or do you, does it still work? I I believe it does still work, and though I mean even today. Although I wouldn't say Cabot Lynx is, is uh, modeled after Wolf Creek. I mean, certainly was trying to get back to just a little bit different look than, uh, than say, what's popular today, you know, with the uh, blowout bunkers and whatnot like that. So, 
So, yeah, uh, certainly the Scottish golf courses have been around for a long time, and, and their influence is, is, is still important today. And, and uh, uh, I like to think that contour, uh, you know, helps make the golf courses. And, and Wolf Creek, uh, I really think that it still still has something good to say about golf and golf architecture. I mean, you could have been, you know, riffing on, you know, I don't know, uh, Robert Trent Jones or, you know, somebody else whose architecture isn't quite as timely as Pete Dye. So, I mean, you could, you could have done a lot worse. <laughs> well, I, yes, of course. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a place in golf for all sorts of design and design strategies. I just, I just know that, uh, you know, for me at least, and, and uh, you know, golf courses with contour and bumps and rolls, and not necessarily green so much as uh, I think I've actually toned down the green style just a tiny bit to, to uh, you know, not to get too carried away with the uh, green contours. But yeah, I mean, that actually has a lot to do with how how golf is played. You know, just the little knobby things are you know in around in in and around the greens is is makes it pretty difficult and, and by the way i didn't mean to uh disparage robert trent jones he actually did a lot of great work no. it's uh, no. yeah, it's just sure. that you know the the worst pete die course is still pretty interesting compared to some of the, the throwaways from exactly. other designers around that period so where so what else did you work on with uh corin crenshaw after you got back from france well i you know from france i went and did a golf course in uh germany on right. my own uh, Schloss Schlangenstein, which, which I think is a is a, a very, it's a pretty good golf course. It really is. And uh, and then a few years later, I did go to uh, uh, Indonesia, and uh, Freeport McMoran was building a course there, and and uh, I spent a couple of years over there working on that for Bill and Ben. And uh, you know, over the years, I've been privileged enough to to. Uh, to come into various courses that he's been working on and then uh, had a chance to uh, continue to learn and to develop skills and uh, did some work at Friars Head and Old Sandwich and, you know, just different venues that Bill's been to that, you know, I've, I feel pretty fortunate to have been a part of a part of it at least. Yeah, certainly good training um, and some, some really nice golf sites as, as well when you're working with, with them or you're working with somebody else and it's not your own, it's not your name on the project, at least on the masthead, what, what do you feel like your biggest strengths are? Well, Bill's had some very good sites to work on and he's also had some that, you know, lacked a little bit of, uh, you know, a potato field, for instance, or something like that. So my strength, I think, is certainly trying to interesting landscapes and uh, just just moving dirt and making it not look like you've moved very much is 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 something that I think I do do uh, well at. So just just to clarify there's a little bit of a break there. You said you, you think your strength is to really take something that might not have a lot to offer as a golf site and create features that look like they're natural and make it exactly. look like exactly. it's a great golf exactly. site. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're we're walking our way up to Cabot Links which we'll spend some time talking about. Uh, I think that 
that what you just said, your skill is, we'll develop that theme a little bit more when we get into Cabot Links. Throughout the 90s, when you're kind of spending some time uh, with other people and, and working, did, did you always want to be the lead designer? Did you always want to have your own projects? It wasn't really until you know, maybe the 2000s when you um, got Sagebrush and then Blackhawk that you kind of got your own name out there a little bit more. So I guess my question is, you know, during the the 90s, what, what were you doing most of the time? And did you feel any frustration or did, were you just biding your time? What was going through your mind during that period? Well, I think I certainly was frustrated in some ways. And, and uh, you know, I, I think about those days at, at some points. And, uh, yeah, uh, actually, I, I was a little bit, but on the other hand, uh, for some reason, and, and I'm sure it's just the way I am, I, I just uh, could never figure out how to go out and, and get those get those kind of jobs, and, uh, and which is not good or bad. It's just the way I am, and uh, I I just enjoyed working for Bill if I, if I had the chance, and certainly if if other work came up for other architects, I was more than happy to to help them in, in, in what they were trying to do and, uh, you know, just try to make a living and knowing that sooner or later some guy's going to come along and if I get the, to get the chance, I think I, I will be ready to, uh, to take on that, uh, to take on that work and, and do well. So, so yeah, there were some tough times in there, but, uh, you know, you just uh, you just keep going in in one direction and and hope it works out. Yeah. Were you did you have an opportunity to talk to developers about jobs during those periods? Were you getting interviews or interest? A little bit, a little bit. In fact, I had a job or I thought I had a job in uh, Ontario at one point that uh, I was working in France, and uh, you know, I, I had a call from a from a, a guy in. Uh, Ontario. We don't need to talk about which one it was. And anyway, I I did some plans for him, and actually did had a fellow go in there and dig some lakes, and we did some work. And for whatever reason, he fired me. <laughs> so so or just let me go. Let's put it that way. I mean, not being in Ontario, not being too cognizant of what was needed to get his project sort of approved in the way I, I kind of felt like that was his job and not mine. And, and I was wrong. And, uh, in the end they did build a golf course and, uh, but I wasn't the architect. What do you think that was the, the biggest obstacle to you getting more jobs? Was it just the, uh, the, the timing that, you know, that the nineties were a completely different time in golf design and golf development than they are now. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of signatures and, uh, player architect firms that you have to compete against. Do you feel like developers wanted more of a name brand or was it just uh, something that, that you were incapable of presenting to them as a potential? They, yeah, they do. I mean, I certainly, and even to this day, I think that that's certainly part of it. Uh, you know, they, they do, uh, there's still a mindset out there that you need a name guy to, to, to sell the golf and there's, you know, or real estate or whatever it was back in those days. And at the same time, if I was working, which I pretty much was for different people at different times or even on your own stuff, uh, you know, I get the blinders on in some ways because you, all my focus was 
on what I was doing at that time and, and not so much looking for work as if you had work every day you got up and you you thought about that work and, and that job and what you were trying to do and so in some ways you just concentrated on what you were doing immediately and not so much as the future or where you wanted to go and uh, so that I don't know if that held me back I'm good at what I do and, and that's what I was doing at that time yeah at some point you know almost in any field getting jobs is the job you know you spend all your time is getting new new work exactly and other right. people are doing yeah. the work who out of curiosity who else were you working with prior to say your design at sagebrush other than corin crenshaw well i did uh, i can't say it was for a long time but i did work with gil hans for just a short period of time down there in uh, oh my goodness it was uh rhode island or somewhere somewhere there in the northeast mm-hmm. and uh about the same time I did some work at Sandwich, Old Sandwich with Bill. So so that was one fellow, uh, Dana Fry and uh, Ron Whitten when they were doing... Uh, Aaron Hills. I didn't know you worked on that. I did a lot of the shaping there, built most of the grains. And, uh, you know, that was great. I mean, yeah. my goodness, they had the U.S. Open The there. opportunity uh, to be involved in that. Yes. And so... Yeah, and have people in the business call you up and say, you know, we would like to have you come out here and do that. That's uh, that that was important to me. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously have an incredible reputation in the field amongst your peers, which is you know that doesn't replace you know <laughs> landing the job and getting a getting a bigger paycheck. But uh, it doesn't, and I mean, it's certainly uh, I'm very very cognizant of that too. But uh, at the same time. It, it's just never been a focus of mine to, to do that. And yeah. uh, today, in my world, I don't regret that. I, I, I've certainly had the chance to work on all the best projects, or some of the best projects that have been built in this era. And so with that said, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Well, let's let's go ahead and jump forward to Cabot Links, because obviously this is the, the golf course that's uh, you know, ranked in the top 100 in the world now, in the top 50, I think, in the Golf Digest recent, most recent list. It's a obviously a golf course that has the attention of the world, and, you know, in 50, 100 years from now, it's likely to still be considered one of the, the best in the world, and it's really a premium opportunity for you. Ben uh, Cowan-Dewar was uh, the developer of that, and then Mike Kaiser, uh, you know, who obviously developed Band and Dunes, came in with some financing as a partner as well. Let's walk through the process of the first time that you were contacted about it, and how did those discussions go? How did you land this job? Well, I had known Ben. Uh, He had actually made a visit out to uh, Alberta, and I played golf with him and his father, I believe, at uh, Wolf Creek. And, uh, you know, he was just a young guy, very enthusiastic. And, I mean, he certainly wanted to get into business. And, you know, that being said, a couple of years later, he had made contact with some people in Nova Scotia and looked at a site. And, uh, you know, he just called me in, in, actually in the winter, in, I think it was near in January. And he said, would you want to fly out and just have a look at this and tell me what you think? And, and so I did. And, uh my goodness, it was, uh, the bay was frozen. And the, <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, about 
zero degrees with a 50 mile an hour wind and uh, I had to think to myself are you kidding me <laughs> it was one of those strange deals where where you just didn't quite see it the first time you saw it and uh, but anyway uh, he did uh, asked me to do a routing for that property and I did that and then we went back out in the spring when it was uh, not frozen <laughs> it was a little bit warmer and uh, you know got to looking around it you know I can't say at the time that it was the best site that I'd ever saw but it was on the ocean and there was some pretty cool things out there with the bay and the, and the and just the way the land laid there, a skinny little piece, and you know, with, with, with the you know, with the town on one side and the ocean on the other, you just—it was special in a few ways like that that you, you had to think to yourself, you know, I can do something with this, you know, I could actually do something with this. So that, so that was, you know, at least my thought process that. It wasn't the greatest piece of property that I ever saw, but it certainly had some traits that were great. And, uh, you know, I felt like I could do something pretty good there. Did you know you had the job at that point? I can't say that I knew for sure, but certainly Ben, I, I, I guess I did. I, I don't even think we'd signed anything at that point or... And, uh, but Ben knew that I think in his, in his mind that I could build something out there for him that, that, that would be, that's what he needed. And yeah, I think in his brain, uh, certainly, uh, I was his guy. And, uh, I do know that later on in the process, I know that at least he's told me that, uh, Mike wanted to, you know, maybe get somebody else or or do the, the other course first or something like that. And, and Ben just said no. He says, oh, you know, this is Rod's deal. And, and, we, and he stuck by me, and uh, in the end, uh, we got it done. Yeah, it's certainly, though, they must have been aware. Ben sounds like he was aware. Mike must have been aware how how closely you'd work with, with uh, Bill and Ben before and, you know, what the kind of shaping that you could do that they were getting – they must have known they were going to get that A-plus product, even if they didn't have that marquee name that had been attached to Abandoned Dunes. They must have known what you're capable of. Well, I think, you know, it took some time, but it certainly gained Mike's confidence. And, I mean, at first, you know, I think uh, to, to, to spend for one summer to go out there and do some shaping and, and uh and to uh, see what we could do with it. And, and he made several trips up there during that first year when we just had a skeleton crew, basically, and we were trying to rough shape, you know, the holes as best we could. And, and over that summer, I, I really think that he began to, to, to see what this place could be. And, and so from there, you know, things loosened up a little bit and we were able to, uh, you know, spend more money the next year and, and try to get it completed. So did it feel like you were auditioning a little bit for Mike? A little bit. Certainly, certainly did. But, uh, well, so what, what's he like to, what was he like to work with from your perspective of uh, having not really, I don't know if you knew him before or had interacted with him. Uh, was, is he a tough guy to, to 
not to get along with, but but it, he he must be a demanding boss, you know. And, and you and you like you said, you're auditioning. It's, you know, you know, your job's on the line. That's right. And I mean, you know, it, I I certainly learned a lot on that job about working with ownership on a on a on a little different level because these fellas, you know, Ben and Mike, are 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 golf course people, and they and they and they know the game of golf, and so when you went out there to do a bunker or we went out there to, to shape a green, I mean, they certainly had strong opinions on what, it, what, you know, what it might could look like or, or why it was being done and, and this sort of thing. So you were always sort of trying to explain yourself in, in some ways, which I quite wasn't used to. And, uh, given that, I mean, I, I just thought it was a great relationship in the end. And, uh, I learned a lot about, listening to what they what ownership had to say and and getting along with mike uh, it was tricky at first i can't say that it wasn't but uh you know i, I it was it was a, a great experience and uh i appreciate what they brought to the table oh for sure do, do you feel like maybe early in the process you were approaching it with like an artist mentality where you didn't necessarily want to be told what to do because you had these strong ideas and, and you knew exactly what Oh, to... certainly so. Yeah. Yeah, there's no yeah. question about that. I mean, I, and in my own private way, I mean, I, in some ways, I, you know, what you want to do, at least in some ways, is at least be able to argue your, argue your own points. And, uh, and I don't know, I, I certainly didn't want to be difficult, but I wanted to be able to put what I was thinking or feeling out there and without, without, uh, being too confrontational, <laughs> but that being said, uh, it, you know, everybody's personality is different. So the way I actually thought about things sometimes was in some cases probably wrong because they were just trying to get the points across of, of maybe a little different than I was. Yeah. And that being said, uh, I know today, uh, you know, if, if Mike made a suggestion, you know, you'd have to sit down and think about it and study on it and, and you know, take it to heart and, and try to do what, what, in some cases, he, he would be right more often than not. So uh, that was a good, that was another good learning experience for me and, and uh, you know, just appreciate now what they bring to the table as far as, you know, design. It, it, it was a, it was very much a team effort in a lot of ways. The site was partially, uh, I think they mined coal on that site. And I think if you look at the golf course today, you wouldn't imagine that it didn't always look that way. Tell us about the, the, the process of designing Cabot Links. Mike Kaiser, uh, I read in an interview, described it as uh, going from industrial to dunal. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the features out there and that look is created by you and this ties in to what I asked you what you thought you, what I you believed your strengths were and that was making something not natural look natural. So describe the process of of creating Cabot Links. Well, part of the part of one of the challenges out there was there, uh, you know you had these a couple of pretty big what I would call mounds or or old tailing piles of some sort that. You know, the whole site, or not the whole site, I would say part of the site had been covered in clay that we were not allowed to cut. We could fill, but we could not cut. So 
we had to go to other parts of the golf course, generate some fill to, you know, basically place up against these these other mounds that started to start to blend them in so they so the, all the features started to became seamless in some ways. And so, you know, just finding fill on a site where you cannot you're not supposed to cut <laughs> was a bit of a challenge. And then uh and then too part of it was uh you know, a little bit of wetlands. And so we had to make fill to go through these wetlands and uh and, and try to make it look natural. So so those challenges were 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 tantamount of trying to get the golf course to kind of blend in from one end to the other. And uh you know that process certainly took some time, some some thinking and and uh, and try to make it all work was 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 challenging. When you're uh, laying out the golf course and and figuring out how the routing and the holes are going to fit together, are you thinking that was there a theme that was developing in your mind, or were, was it really just you know we're going to create a a link style golf course on this particular property, or did you have you know thinking were you thinking about any other co- courses that you might have been familiar with that had a similar setting or or similar contours? Uh, um, certainly, I think we were, and I say we, me and Ben at least were you know wanting a link style golf course on that on that site, and given the way it was just laid out sort of dictated the, the way the holes might could work. Uh, I do know that at one point there was a, um, uh, what they called the ice plant that was down near the coast. And one of my original routings actually had the, had the, uh, clubhouse at the, at the North, or I would say the South end of the property, right, right, right on the ocean, which, uh, they have since bought that, but at that time they didn't own it. I think Ben looked at the routing, said, you know, it uh, looks okay, but, you know, we don't own this, and I can't get it. So, uh, basically, we, we went up to, the, to where the, the present clubhouse site is now and uh, started over. But given that, I mean, some of the holes always stayed the same. And, uh, yeah, we, we had a, a few variations of, of the way it the way it was laid out, but, uh, and it also has evolved over time. The holes that actually they wanted to play first and second and third. I mean, we, we've had a couple of variations on, the on, on just the, the numbering of the holes. Yes, for sure. But, uh, anyway, today it plays pretty much the way I originally laid it out with a couple of changes. So what were the, what were the, the main strategic concepts and, and shaping concerns that you wanted to implement into the, into the golf course? Well, I mean, uh, part of the thinking certainly with, uh, with the fescue fairways and the fescue greens and, you know, was to try to, and it's a windy site. So, you know, so you knew that you were going to have, you know, you could, you can design things in there to accept a running ball in, in, in uh, the ground game. So I know people talk about that a lot, but, you know, trying to bring that back or, or you just have it to begin with. And, and, you know, I think that was a site that actually demanded that in some way. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that you could run the ball on a, onto the greens in, in a lot of cases and uh, play different holes in different directions and, uh, in some ways try to get 
the people to move the ball. You know, Alapete died, you know, right to left and left to right. I mean, all those points were very important to me. And then from a design standpoint, we tried to implement those on, on each and every hole. This will tip my tip your hand in case it's not obvious to anybody that I'm not an actual golf architect, which uh, not even close. But when you look at a site like that and the work through the fairways, all the shaping through the fairways and all the little humps and hollows, it looks, I mean, it could be natural. I mean, there are places in the world that, where those types of features are natural and, and you could just go grass them. I'm assuming that most of those were built by you and shaped by you and your crew. How much... Yeah. Are they, is every single contour and mound calculated or sometimes would you just push things around and, and just kind of see, see how it looks and get, you know, try uh, to get some randomness in it? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, I had a, a Dave Axon who's done a lot of work for, uh, for Bill Coor. He, he ran the job day to day, which freed me up to, to run the bulldozer to, run a backhoe or whatnot and uh you know we we had a good team of people out there building golf in some ways all the mounds certainly aren't calculated i mean certainly some of them are but part of the art of it is just trying to do the randomness and 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 that's hard because you know we're people and we sort of try to think of things but in some ways you you want to just make a mess and then drag it off and see what you end up with and to get the the contours that natural, you almost need to do it in an unnatural way, so to speak. <laughs> that makes sense. You gotta you gotta try to do some random things, but you know some of the bigger cuts and fills. Obviously, we we uh, you know we thought about a lot, and you know it, it was just fun to do. I mean, go out there and and, and move dirt around, build greens, look at them change them uh, or not change them. Pete would always say, we're not changing anything. We're just developing it. So, so that's sort of a philosophy you need to get your, your head around is, you know, we're not changing things. We're just, we're just keep working on it until we like it. And, right. uh, and that's how you build good golf. Other than uh, having a site plan, you know, a routing map, do you, do you sketch out any more details on the holes or is it completely developed? You know, you know where the T is, you know where the green is. And then you get out there and you figure out where the rest of the features go. Is it like that? Or do you do drawings and kind of fine tune it a little bit more before you go out on the machinery? I mean, certainly I have been some cases where I would do a sketch and start to think about, well, I could like to like the hole to kind of look like this or, or that. I mean, I, I would certainly say that I have done that somewhat. I know Bill is, oftentimes given me a little sketch of what he was thinking I, it doesn't always turn out the way the sketch would but you know certainly have done some of that and then then and then the other thing is when you're out there on the building it from the ground up or developing it you start to see things in the field that you know demand your attention and and some of the bunkering would uh, would appear just because a certain mound got built for whatever out of you know randomness and 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 you would start to place things there and then and then the whole would start start to take shape and you can you know think about what you were originally trying to intend to do if you're trying to get, make them hit the ball right to left or left to right or whatnot and how they can get onto the green or what you could place in front of the green to make it a little bit more difficult or easy or 
all those things come into play, but uh, the features that you develop in the field sometimes dictate how the, fi- how, how the final strategy works out. So during the construction season at Cabot Links, did you ever leave? Did you live there and, and work there full-time every day? Uh, pretty much. I mean, uh, I did travel back and forth to Vancouver a little bit, but, uh, you know, we would move out there in, in April, and uh, we stayed through the end of October. And, uh, you know, pretty much lived and breathed Cabot Links every day. In your mind, is, is, there any, is there any other way to build a golf course? Well, as I said before, you know, you get the blinders on and you just, you just, you're thinking about different holes and what you did the day before and what you want to do the next day. And, you know, that, you know, that's where your focus is, was just trying to make that the best golf course you've ever, you've ever had a chance to work on. And, uh, in, in that case, it was very rewarding to be able to do that and have the time to do it and, and know at the end of the day that you and your team you, you know you did this how would you describe your personality when you're when you're on a go, on a job site i mean what would you would you would you say you're like an obsessive person or just really passionate and focused what do you what words would you de- use to describe how you design golf courses oh i don't really know i mean i think i'm just uh you know pretty easy going i'd like to see what other people can do too and uh give them a chance to 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 show what, what what they have in their in their minds and uh, you know take advantage of anything that good happens and uh, you know eliminate what you don't like and and certainly there's an, an editing process in, in all of this and uh, you know day to day out there at Cabot Links I mean uh, Dave Ashland was fantastic I mean he ran the job you didn't have to worry about who was going where or when he had it all organized and then. Uh, and then in his spare time, he would go out there and, and uh, you know, contribute to the construction too. So, or and and design. So it was it was just a great experience from that point of view. But I mean, I, I'm not out there trying to direct traffic so much as 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 be the a bit, a bit of the glue that holds everybody together and gets them in a direction that that you want to go. Is your favorite thing still though to be on equipment, getting into the dirt and shaping? I would say, I mean, I enjoy that probably more, more than some. Uh, I certainly love the idea of, of, of shaping a green and then grading it off and studying it and then, and then changing it if you don't like it or, you know, having that freedom to do it. And then get other people's opinion on what, you know, do you like this? Do you don't like it? Uh, what do you think? And, and it's just but yeah, running equipment for me is, is certainly uh, uh, almost a release from the stress of building a golf course. I can't say that it's not stressful building when I, or designing when I think there's some some pressure to to ex, you know excel in some ways. But uh, you know, built you know running a, running equipment. Uh, you're actually out there doing something, and and so so that takes a little bit of the stress or away. Yeah. So what's what's going through your mind when you're when you're uh, sh- floating out or shaping shaping features and greens? Are you in a meditative state? Are you concentrating? Are you listening to music? What what sort of what's the state of mind that you're in? What's your method? What's your process? <laughs> well, that's hard to say. Certainly, uh, 
I mean, you just you can. I'm not sure, Derek, how that kind of works, but yeah, you just you just you're just looking at the you're just looking at the contours and trying to get them to to just flow together. And, and I guess meditative might be might be one way to look at it. Uh, I I don't say that I've listened to music or or do anything like that. I, I'm just pretty much concentrating on whatever contours that you are working on and uh, try try to make them at the end of the day you stand back and say man that, how did this happen you know it just it's just a I don't know how you describe it other than you just try to let your mind relax and, and not really over think it in some ways right you, you definitely get in this, some kind of a zone though exactly yeah, certainly like that in some ways. Yeah. So you know, so now that Cabot Links has been completed and you know for a number of years now, and it's obviously like we I said a little while ago, already considered one of the one of the world's best courses. What's your feeling now, looking back on it? Obviously, you must be satisfied. Is there anything you'd like to to have back a hole that you'd like to do over? Oh, I I can't say that. I mean, people, you know, sometimes ask, "What's your favorite hole?" Well, it'd be like asking you, you know, which is your favorite child. There's no really good answer. <laughs> I uh, when I go back there, I just I love to play, and at the end of the day, if I can go out there and discover something that something new about the course that you you never even knew was there, that's that's sort of cool. And uh, you know, it, there's a a bit of a timeless feeling to it you know if you play wolf creek or cabot links or black Hawk, there i mean i think at the end of the day if they're fun to play and and uh, and and the ball takes some little quirky bumps here and there you you feel pretty good about it so so uh yeah i just enjoy going out there and, and seeing how the golf course actually plays now that it's done and and certainly not opposed to going out there and working on some holes if if they don't quite match up to what you you know what you felt like they might could be. But uh, that being said, I, I don't know if I'd change a lot. Does the golf course now that you've had a chance to see it and think about it, does it remind you of anything else? Any other golf course in some other part of the world? Either you know maybe because visually or or the way it plays. Yeah. You know, I suppose it does, and, uh, and you know, I've been over there to to uh, you know Scotland and Ireland and England and, and played some of those courses. God forbid, I would never be able to remember the names of, of most of them. But uh, you know, so, some of the bunkering out there would remind you of something you might see over there. So uh, yeah, pretty happy with that with that sort of style, I guess you might call it. Yeah, it's fantastic looking golf course. Now, you also worked um, at Cabot Cliffs with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw and their team on that. What was your primary job at on the Cliffs? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, there were some parts of the Cliffs that, you know, basically flat, featureless ground that uh, had been, you know, clear-cut from, you know, little scrubby trees that were out there, you know, one and ten and nine and seven and eight, so... That little section of those holes, Bill just took me over there and said, you know, could you do something with this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was happy to do that. And I know there was, you know, parts of the other team were concentrating on the 
either end of the golf course, and I was sort of there in the middle, fumbling around, trying to trying to take some ground that was not that good, and and build some interesting stuff that Bill could you know could begin to develop something with, and uh, so that was that was my job, and, and Dave Axland was out there too, so we spent a lot of time just doing cuts and fills and shoving dirt around, and hopefully when Bill got there, he liked what we were doing, and uh, and he did. <laughs> And he would he would start to to work on editing uh, edit, editing what we were doing. You know, we we end up developing those holes. Both courses are wildly successful. It's an, one of the great one-two punches in golf. Uh, but other than the, some of the uh, holes on the cliff course being elevated and up on the rocky bluffs, what do you think? What are some of the essential differences between the two golf courses? The way they turned out. Do you? have slightly different strategic styles or design styles that, that are different than Bill Coors? Well, I, I certainly, you know, in some ways I think, the, you know, uh, the contouring is different in, 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 in some ways. I mean, I think the, the cliffs is a little, you know, the slopes and the contours are just a little bit longer, uh, perhaps a little bit softer than what we did over at uh, Cabot Links. And, uh, you know, the greens are... Good greens. They're they're just not. They're not. They're they're different. They're they're. they're not, I think ours are just a little bit bumpier in some ways, but uh, maybe bumpy is not the best word. But yeah, I, certainly there's a different style I think in in the greens and and the contouring. Strategy wise, I mean, you know. There's just they're just different holes out there, and everyone demands something just a little bit different. And uh, you know, I think Bill's course is just a little bit more lay of the land, and uh, and ours was uh, you know developed it a little bit differently, a little bit more uh, built, I guess you might say. Yeah, right. And we've talked a little bit about you've mentioned the team that you put together at Cabot Cliffs and Dave Axlin's involvement. You've also worked with some some younger guys. I know you worked with Jeff Mingay uh, for a long time. He's out on his own now. I think he was involved in in the Lynx project as well. And now you work yeah. with uh, Keith Cutton. It, yeah. There seems to be a younger generation of guys who kind of are coming of age on the bulldozer. They're working for you. They're working for Bill Coor, Tom Doak, Gil Hans. It's like this new generation who really is coming into this design build in a serious way that maybe we haven't seen in, you know, past generations, you'd be an associate on a team and be, you know, filing paperwork in an office or, you know, delegating to subcontractors. How do you, how do you recognize talent? I mean, is there such a thing uh, as, as a shaper, as somebody, how do you define talent? And, and do you see that in this younger generation of guys that are coming up that I just mentioned? Well, I mean, from my own perspective, I, I always, I've always felt like, uh, you know, I could, I could take a machine and build something. I, I mean, I, I could shape something. I could show it to people. And then, and then I think another thing is, is when you were working for Pete, he would explain things to you. So you need to understand his language. And so for younger guys coming up, when you talk to them about what you're trying to do out there and why and 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 what it might potentially could look like, uh, then you send out send them out there and then see what they produce and 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 if they got a talent for not only listening to you, interpreting what you want, but 
but producing something that, that looks uh, that looks good and feels good and, 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 and might play the way you want, then that's how you decide. I mean, you uh, you just see what they can do, and uh, and you take that and 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 edit their work and, and try to get it the way you want it for whatever reason, and and uh, but you use their creativity too. So it's it's always a, a, a team effort, but yeah, it, they're just players, and uh, you know you try to pick good talent and and, and uh, get them to produce what you want. Right, I've heard Bill Core say before, you know there are a lot of people that can sketch out a hole and come up with strategies and uh, bunkering concepts, but can you build it? That's the it all comes down to can you produce it in the dirt, off the land, and make it work in three dimensions in reality. Um, so it's, right. yeah, um, and it must give you some satisfaction knowing that, you know, you worked under Bill Coor, you worked under Pete Dye, you were on cruise and, and now you're mentoring some younger guys who are going to go on and do the same thing and hopefully have as productive, you know, uh, careers as you've had. That must be satisfying. Well, it's satisfying to me. I mean, I think that's something that we all sort of got from Pete in some ways. I mean, he was sort of the grandfather of all that that methodology, if I would call it that. And, uh, and so we had to pass that on to, to some of the younger guys. That that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's good for golf and it's good for golf design. And, and, uh, you know, we're all out there, you know, the game is first and foremost. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to produce good golf, not, uh, you know, just not, just not have a career. Now it's just a matter of, are there enough jobs to go around for everybody? Well, certainly that's a problem, and uh, you know, given that the game, you know, goes up and down in popularity, just like a lot of things, and uh, you know, you have to weather good times or you know, weather bad times, and 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 be around to take advantage of when there is some more work. So, you know, I'm I'm not I've never been focused on getting a lot of work. I I just would like a few good jobs, and and that'd be enough. I I asked about talent as far as shaping golf courses and and getting a golf course out of the ground, who's the best shaper that you've ever worked with or been around? Well, back in the olden days, I mean, there was a fellow by the name of David Postaway who worked for Pete that uh, was this amazing guy on the bulldozer, as fast as I've ever seen, and, uh, you know, dedicated to no end and, and, and loyal to Pete. And, uh, you know, he, he built the original tournament players club with Dean Beeman and, and that group and so he he was certainly one of the guys that if you had to go into battle with somebody you'd want him and another fellow that is probably a little bit underrated is Dave Axon I mean I think he's just fabulous so you know he's run jobs he, he runs equipment he he's very organized and uh you know has, has, they've done their own golf courses I mean Dave and uh, Dan Proctor and you know, he's just a he's just a very very talented guy, and he'd be one guy that you know the best of the rest is what I would say. Where would you put yourself in that category? Right up at the top? Well, I hesitate to say, but uh, I think I could. I certainly would like to be on the team with any of those fellows. Yeah, and I I think that they would say the same about you if I asked them. I'll probably I'll try to get I'm going to try to get um. Dave Axland on this show at some point, and uh, I have a feeling if I ask him the same question, your name might might be one of the ones he he gives to me. Well, 
I'll, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Now I set him up. I'll make him say it if he doesn't come up with it on his own. Um, Rod, let's get you out of here with a few questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, the first one is, what do you think of the word minimalism? Uh, in today's age, a little bit overused. I mean, the bottom line is at the end of the day, you want to be able to, uh, you know, have, have, have good golf. And, and you need to, I, I would say I've never been afraid to move dirt rather than say I've been a minimalist and didn't move any. Is is there a difference between minimalism and naturalism, or are these just terms that don't mean anything to you? Uh, you know, I have walked some sites that you'd have to say that, you know, they're perfect just the way they are in, in some ways, or 99% perfect. And, uh, you know, I know at, uh, at the Sand Hills when Bill was doing that, I mean, you know, they – they tried to move the least amount of dirt possible, and uh, and they, they did a great job at it. Uh, but that being said, you know, it's just very natural. And, and some of the early courses on good ground, you could leave them that way. Uh, but but when the sites get challenging, you you got to have the sense to go out there and, and move enough dirt to, to make it all work. Yeah, were, were you involved in Sand Hills at all, or did you see that at an early point? I did see it at an early point. I went out there and, and certainly spent some time there. I, I can't say that I ever worked there, though, but uh, I toured it, uh, in it during the construction. Okay, well, let's take Sandhills off the table. But it, So in your mind, the way you see things, what's the, I guess, second best pure golf site you've ever seen or worked on? Uh, well, the best site that I've ever seen was a, is a, some sand dunes in, in Alberta. And uh, out near Lloyd Minister, and you know, on a scale of one to ten, I think it was an eleven. But it just never got built. <laughs> so they're they're still just out there waiting. It's still out there just waiting, and uh, you know, well, let's get let's get some financing together and uh, get get some partners going, and let's make it happen. And we should because I mean it, it's just unbelievable. But uh, yeah, that. That was certainly the best site I've ever seen. The other ones that I've worked on. I actually think I've seen pictures of that. Maybe. Um, yeah, probably have. Floating around on the uh, on social media somewhere. Yeah, I know that Mike did come out there, and then uh, you know Bill and I together actually did a routing for it, and uh, but it just never went anywhere. So unfortunately. Yeah, that's too bad. Okay, so for the sake of arguments, here are the parameters. Uh, you've got one round of golf to play. It has to be a modern course, and it has to be a golf course that you were not involved in the construction of. Where would you choose to play your last round? Not involved in the construction. Well, this is a little insight into the things that you personally like as a player. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good one. I'm not <laughs> not involved. Well. I do know that back in the olden days, I went out to North Carolina with uh, with Bill Coor, and we played Pinehurst. And uh, you know, I just thought that was maybe the one of the greatest places I'd ever been to, being a college student at the time and never seeing a, a world class course, so to speak. So Pinehurst would certainly be up there. And uh, okay, that qualifies as an older course. What about a modern course? Something built in the last couple decades. 
Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, you got to stick your neck out here, Rod. I got to stick my neck out. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's a, that's a modern course, is it? <laughs> I, I don't. I, I really don't know. I, I just. Is it because you don't get a, get a, around? You're always working, so you don't get around to to see the modern courses, or do you? You just haven't seen anything that you like. Uh, you know, I guess when I think about it, it's just one of those questions where you're trying to to get your brain working. But you know, I've I have played Banff and Jasper in now uh, Alberta, the old Stanley Thompson courses, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Last summer, I played uh, Banff again. I hadn't been back there for a few years. I know it's changed, but uh, that would be one course where I would certainly wouldn't mind playing my last round. Do you Are you a fan of Pete Dye's courses, Sawgrass or Whistling Straits or Kiowa? You know, in some ways. Uh, you know, the old tournament players club was a was – a, you know, I, it, it may have actually been better back in the olden days than it is today, uh, in some ways. But uh, I'm certainly, if, I don't know about whistling straight so much. It just seems like there's just so much stuff out there that it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit unnatural in some ways. So uh, I can't say that I'm a big fan of it. No. Yeah. Well, uh, what's coming up next for you? What do you got in the pipeline once you get back from Mexico? You roll up the sleeves. Where are you going? You're working on uh, the Ross restoration at Algonquin, right? Yes, we are. And, uh, you know, that's certainly something we need to finish up in the spring. Uh, and that's up in uh, up in that part of near Cabot, I guess, sort of, New Brunswick area? It is. Uh, it's on the, uh, you know, it's on the Bay of Fundy. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, so there's some seaside holes and uh, a beautiful site and uh, a difficult site. You know, there's a lot of rock there, but... Uh, you know that's something that we've been working on for a couple of years, and and look forward to finishing it, finishing it up, and uh, perhaps doing a little bit more work there. So, mm-hmm. so that's you know immediately on the plate. Uh, I know that I've done a routing for some people in France, and I'd like to make a trip over there in the spring to see how they're coming with the uh, with the permitting process and whatnot. And uh, you know. You never can tell whether these jobs will ever go in the end or not, but I, but I'm hoping that may may be something we can uh, we can do. And we're of course we're all hoping that Mike Kaiser and maybe Ben Cohen Dewar have another project up their sleeves. Like to think maybe <laughs> that you'd get some serious consideration for anything that that they'll be developing in the future. Well, I would hope so. Uh, don't know much about what they're doing there. I do know they they've got some plans to do. You know. More putting greens and a little uh, and a short course. Uh, and whether they do a third course or a fourth course, I'm not real sure at this point. Uh, but if and when they do, I, I, I hope I'm on the list of people they want to talk to. Be silly not to not to have you on the short list for sure. <laughs> Rod, I appreciate your time today. What are you going to do the rest of? What do you do during down in there in Mexico? Like when you do, you, are you swimming? Well, do you tennis? You know, yeah, I go. We go certainly to the beach a little bit, but there's a little nine-hole course over here uh, within walking distance, and I, I'm gonna wander over there and hit a bucket of golf balls. That sounds great. Yeah, work on my work on my swing. That's okay. what I want to do. <laughs> well, enjoy your time. Uh, looking forward to seeing you back in the architecture game and, and getting some projects. And I, it was really great to talk to you. Thanks for being so candid and and uh, spending some time with us today. Well, it was fun. I appreciate you uh, you thinking about me and. Uh, 
you know, I look forward to, to hearing more from you. Okay, likewise. Like We look forward to hearing more from you as well. Okay, let's catch up again sometime soon. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Rod. All right, that's a wrap. I was actually concerned going into this interview. I'd heard that Rod Whitman was a reserved guy, a man of few words, so to speak. And one of the worries you have as an interviewer, especially if you have a podcast, is that your subject won't open up or won't be expansive with their answers. And you'll end up having to fill up the time on your own, and you might even run out of questions, and and that would be a disaster. But uh, that was definitely not the case at all. Rod was very conversational and and reflective in his answers and, and honest and forthcoming as well. Uh, I especially liked how he was honest about in his early designs where he would try to admittedly out Pete Dye, Pete Dye, I believe he said. But if we've we've learned anything about his career, he went from uh, an early style of imitation to one of authenticity as evident with the design at, at Cabot Links, which is a very authentic and naturalistic and beautiful design. Apologies again about uh, some wonky audio there. I'm not sure what was going on with our Skype connection. Uh, that could have been better. And one loose end, he, he mentioned uh, Potato Field at one point, and I thought I might point out that I believe that was at Friar's Head, the course on Long Island that Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw built uh, about a decade ago. It's one of the considered one of the world's best courses as well. Most of the course is set on these beautiful bluffs, dunesy bluffs overlooking New York Sound, but the other half of the golf course was agricultural. It was an old field, the potato field, and I guess that's where they utilized Rod Whitman's specialty in turning uh, average-looking land into uh, something beautiful and very golf-like. It was also interesting, and I think this speaks to how humble Rod Whitman is, is that he went from his own design and construction project at Cabot Links, received amazing acclaim for that, and then a few years later, just basically moved north a few hundred yards and, and helped Bill Coor build Cabot Cliffs and just went right back to work. Uh, and I couldn't get that this image out of my head when he said, again, he turned, uh, Bill Coor turned Rod onto the worst part of the site and said, you know, give me something to work with here. And Rod Whitman said, you know, he he was working there and, and he had, Bill Coor had other shapers uh, at the north side and the south side. And I, I just had this image of Bill Coor, you know, as the, the commanding army general ordering Rod to hold the middle and he's sending other regiments out on the left flank and the right flank. It was a, it was just this very colorful image that popped into my head. But uh, I want to thank Rod Whitman for joining me. Uh, that was enjoyable. I, I don't think he does a lot of media and a lot of press, so I appreciate his time. Thank you all for listening. Remember to visit feedtheball.com for news on upcoming episodes and also golf and golf design-related content. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at feedtheball. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just go to the app on your phone. In the search box, type in feedtheball. And when that comes up, just hit the subscribe or plus button. I appreciate that. Once again, I want to thank the Sundogs for allowing me to use their music on the intro and outro. Check them out on iTunes or wherever else you buy your music. Uh, And we're going to send you out today with a song called Desperation and Borrowed Time. Until next time.